0: Doctors Sophia Mattingly and Jennifer Selwyn. Cap City Chalk Talk is a podcast by and for educators, past, present, and future, and anyone interested in the state of K 12 public education in the Sacramento area and beyond. On today's episode of Cap City Chalk Talk, We are discussing the socio-political response to critical race theory and oppression of anti-racist teaching in America. While critical race theory has been used as a framework in educational research and classrooms since the 1970s, many Americans, including some educators, may not have heard of it until the fall of 2020. On the eve of the election, then President Donald Trump published a string of tweets and an executive order condemning the theoretical framework, the 1619 Project, and other studies centered on the legacy of racism in the United States. However, Trump was not alone in his crusade against critical race theory. Other Republican politicians and right-leaning media outlets took up the rallying cry of Trump. Fox News personality, Tucker Carlson, tweeted on August 20th of last year. My goal is simple, to persuade the president of the United States to issue an executive order abolishing critical race theory in the federal government. Fox News further pushed the term and their agenda into the forefront of conservative America with 1300 mentions of the term critical race theory in the four months leading to the start of the current school year. With so much high level political and media attention on critical race theory, it shouldn't be much of a surprise that the term quickly became a hot button topic and the subject of controversy among state and local educators and policymakers it seemed almost inevitable it would lead to new legislation regulating what and how teachers could teach. Stories of lawsuits and punitive actions against teachers and districts continue across the nation, while according to a Brookings report, roughly eight states, Idaho, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Iowa, New Hampshire, Arizona, and South Carolina, have passed legislation already limiting or forbidding classroom discussions or training on systemic racism in the U.S. Additionally, the legislation restricts teachers from discussions about bias, privilege, discrimination, or oppression. And it's not just these eight states, though. There are at least 20 other states considering similar legislation at this time. As Brookings sociologist Victor Ray said, making laws outlawing critical race theory confirms the point that racism is embedded in the law. So that begs the questions. What rights do teachers have? What kind of legal standings do these laws and policies really have in the face of the Constitution? Ostensibly, teachers would be provided protection by the First Amendment's freedom of speech. However, this isn't necessarily the case for K-12 teachers. As government employees, things get a little more complicated on this front. And that actually has a lot to do with a 2006 Supreme Court decision. According to Justia Supreme Court Center, the 2006 case Garcetti versus Ceballos forced the court to consider the question, should a public employee's purely job-related speech expressed strictly pursuant to the duties of employment be protected by the First Amendment simply because it touched on a matter of public concern, or must the speech also be engaged in as a citizen? The Supreme Court found in a five to four decision authored by Justice Anthony Kennedy that speech by a public official is only protected if it is engaged in as a private citizen not if it is expressed as part of the official's public duties. This decision was used and followed in the Gonzales versus Douglas case and subsequent 2010 law banning the teaching of ethnic studies in public schools in Arizona. That however, was eventually overturned by a federal judge in 2017. Interestingly, these limits on First Amendment protections for teachers do not extend to higher education. In a 1976 Supreme Court case brought by faculty and non-faculty members of State University of New York against the Board of Regents, the court found the college classroom to be a, quote, marketplace of ideas and struck down a New York prohibition on teaching what they called subversive doctrines, which at the time was really aimed at communism. So for now at least, this is a problem that only plagues K-12. Personally, what I find interesting is that a classroom is only considered to be a marketplace of ideas in a post-secondary setting. So what is the K-12 classroom then, if not a place where ideas are exchanged? Some may wonder if the First Amendment of the Constitution is unlikely to protect teachers, then what about the 14th Amendment, in particular, the section protecting due process, which states, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. This due process amendment is more likely to protect teachers from punitive action stemming from vague or catch-all anti-critical race theory legislation since it requires specificity in the infraction that may not be present in the language of the state or local law, especially considering none of the states with current legislation limiting what or how teachers can teach contain the actual term critical race theory. So while this might work for some appeals, there's another aspect of the 14th Amendment that may be more useful for others. As stated by Tiana Headley at Bloomberg Law, the anti-critical race theory laws could be subject to quote, racial animus challenge, which asserts a racially discriminatory intent in how a law or policy is enacted or enforced. This is the kind of case that's required an examination of bill sponsors' public statements, among other evidence. This is precisely how the 14th Amendment was used to overturn that Arizona decision to eliminate ethnic studies in 2017. Of course, even the obviousness of the violation of the 14th Amendment Maybe unsuccessful in our current conservative dominated Supreme Court. So, now that we've covered some of the most recent backlash and legal happenings, what is critical race theory anyway? And why is it suddenly so controversial? And how did we get here? I mean, as a country, how did we get to this place of censoring teachers in America? The very country whose name is practically synonymous with freedom. And finally, how do we as educators navigate the current socio-political climate and continue to do our jobs critically and with integrity?
1: So as we think about the intensity and the widespread nature of this backlash that we've been seeing right around the country uh, against so-called critical race theory, and I say so-called because we can argue that a lot of this really has to do with the politics of teaching history in K through 12, we thought we'd get a little bit deeper dive into the actual historical context behind this. And so we're very honored to welcome as our guest today, Dr. Rebecca Mulholland. Dr. Mulholland is an assistant professor of history at California State University, Sacramento. Mulholland's research focuses on transgender and queer studies, as well as on the history of race, gender, sexuality, class, and social movements in the United States. Um, Mulholland recently completed her dissertation, historical erasure and violence, uh, sorry, historical erasure is violence, the lives and experiences of Black transgender women and nonconforming women of color in the 19th and 20th century. In 2020, Mulholland wrote, directed, and produced a film series entitled Civil Rights Stories to Inspire Change for the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Change at the University of Memphis, where she completed her doctoral studies. And I'd like to welcome you, Rebecca. We're really grateful to have you with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So. Really basic question to start with, what is critical race theory anyway, in your view? Um, What is this thing that gets thrown around a lot as uh, as this concept of critical race theory?
2: Yeah, it's like one of those things we keep hearing it, but it's like, how do we get to the gist of it? And basically it's a framework for understanding how racism has shaped social institutions, such as our criminal legal system, education system, housing market, and our healthcare system, it can help Americans to understand how oppressive policies and practices have shaped public education. According to Kimberly Crenshaw, who helped coin the term critical race theory, she explains that it's the idea of a Black person as a legal concept. So she states, you know, our enslavability was a marker of our degradation And our degradation was a marker of the fact that we could never be a part of this country. So our Supreme Court said this in the Dred Scott versus Sanford ruling of 1857. And this was not a close decision. And what critical race theory does is that it recognizes that race intersects with other identities, including sexuality, gender, identity, and so many others. And so rather than recognizing racism as this thing of you know the past, it acknowledges that the legacy of slavery, segregation, and the imposition of second-class citizenship on Black Americans, as well as other people of color, continue to permeate the social fabric of our nation.
1: That's that's a great uh, distillation of, of of what we mean by critical race theory, I think. And then and then, but then the question, I guess, to follow from that would be: Is what you just described what these movements that we're seeing around the country in school boards and even at, at the level of state legislatures? Uh, is that necessarily a targeting critical race theory as you described it as something that's being taught in the K through twelve schools, or is there something else going on? And if there is something else, what what might that be? So basically. While we don't
2: use in K through 12 that language exactly like how do you teach a kindergartner um, critical race theory, that language, that's something that we don't really get to until we get to our post-secondary education and maybe even onward because I know a lot of undergraduates are like, well, what is, you know, this is this new thing, but it's not a new thing. But what happens is, is we teach students, when we're teaching them during Black History Month, we're teaching them the words of Dr. King and the actions of Rosa Parks. We're teaching them that, yeah, racism is a thing and we're breaking it down so that they understood what Dr. King stood for, what people, women, individuals like Rosa Parks went through with having to, why was she arrested simply for sitting on the bus? Many of them ride the bus with their parents or they ride the school bus. And so they know that Okay, I chose this seat because this one was open and it just so happened to be at the front and the middle or the back. And so to show them that well, there's a history into these actions. And so while we don't place emphasis on this term exactly, we're teaching them just the history of how we came to be and how we got here and what those before them went through. And you know, students like kids, they are really resilient, they are they understand things, and so we use different language that doesn't confuse them, but does give them an absolute clear picture of the world that they live in.
1: Right, right. So it would be adapted for for the age level to which someone was teaching. And this gets into kind of another understanding of, uh, of an approach that people might be a little bit more familiar with, particularly K through 12 teachers, which would be what's sometimes called culturally responsive teaching. And, um, and, and you know, we could think about that as teaching students, teaching to our students cultural backgrounds, in many cases, particularly in California, that in Sacramento area, that would be many, many different cultural backgrounds, teaching to different frames of reference and, uh, and integrating those specifics into our teaching. How do you see a difference between that approach with, with which people might be more familiar and what you just described as critical based theory? What would be the significant differences
2: so what culturally responsive teaching is it's a pedagogy that recognizes the importance of including students cultural backgrounds in all aspects of learning and so what this different crt attempts to do is bridge the gap between us as educators and our students and when we integrate into our classroom instruction culturally Responsive strategies can have so many important benefits. This strengthens students' sense of identity. It promotes, you know, these buzzwords equity, racism, and inclusivity, anti racism and inclusivity into the classrooms. It engages them in the course material, but it also supports critical thinking. And with culturally responsive um, teaching, You know, there's some strategies. You know, when students enter our classrooms, they're not coming to us as empty vessels, waiting to be filled with all of this information we as educators are giving them. Our job is to encourage them to draw on their prior knowledge and experiences to contribute to group discussions and classroom discussions, which provides an anchor to our classroom environments and learning. And so what our environment should bring together is, you know, students, social communities to make it more contextual and relevant. So they can say, you know, this is what happened in my neighborhood or what I went through. And we as educators give them context and relevance and bridge those gaps. And it actually promotes their sense of self and understanding of who they are, where they come from. And so in my classes, you know, when we discuss civil rights movement, They understand that, boy, we're still in the midst of a civil rights movement today. And so we discuss the history behind there, how and why this matters today, not just in our school, but the communities that we come from. And many of them go back to their communities and they're having these conversations with their friends and their parents and so many pastors and things of that nature. And so we emphasize that, you know, we come from different places and spaces, and each of us bring this unique perspective to these conversations and they all matter and they all bring something very important to that. And so I always make sure that to emphasize that this is our classroom and we have a voice that matters and what we're doing is we're not just learning, we're building a community and we're building relationships. And so in turn we go out and we continue to build these communities and further these conversations.
1: That's that's great. That sounds so it sounds like from what you're saying, it it, it sounds like there could be a kind of complementary relationship between what we, what you're just describing as culturally responsive teaching, as you practice it in your classroom and other educators do, and providing critical race theory or something like it, perhaps, and depending on the age of the students, whatever is appropriate for them. And I guess that leads me to, you know, well, okay, all of this sounds pretty good to me, and as an educator, I certainly hope that i've uh, that I've tried to teach within the spirit of of both culturally responsive teaching and also critical race theory in the sense of understanding institutional frameworks that uh, that 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 have you know legitimized race, racism, uh, discrimination, oppression, uh, historically, and what that's looked like at different times and places um, as well as uh, as well as what you were discussing of culturally responsive teaching. and I guess, so then, the, the, the question would be like, well, okay, wh- what about this current backlash we're seeing? What what are the roots of that? What did it come out of nowhere? Um, you know, it seems like it's very recent, but are there roots to it that we can point to to help us understand this this moment we're in now? Yeah. So many educators are comparing this current backlash
2: to what we call massive resistance. Which was an effort by white segregationists in California in Virginia to obstruct school desegregation for years following the Brown decision. And so on May 17, 1954, when the Supreme Court ruled in the Brown v. The Brown versus Board of Education um decision that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional as it violated our 14th Amendment. And this sparked so many different reactions from victory to rage. And so that's where the massive resistance came in. And although this ruling gave black children the right to attend schools that had long prohibited them, it also resulted in some white families enrolling their children in private schools, moving to the suburbs, we call this white flight, or redrawing school district boundaries to resist this integration. And even now, more than half a century after the Brown decision, efforts are still underway by some wealthy and majority white communities to create their own school district. And there exists a $23 billion gap between majority white and majority black school districts out of which spills so many inequalities in and of itself.
0: Something that um, I was thinking about when, uh, Jen, when you mentioned asking about uh, culturally responsive teaching and you mentioned you use the word familiarity um, saying something that people might be more familiar with and I think that that's really uh, an interesting term um, because I'm finding in discussions with a lot of people or when I'm hearing some of this backlash that it's actually a lack of familiarity that is really at uh, at the, the forefront of this where you know these are terms that people are hearing and they're grabbing onto and they're kind of being handed a definition or told a narrative about what it is doing or what it's meant to do, but their lack of own misunderstanding or uh, lack of understanding of it, of the concepts are really kind of exacerbating an, an, already, an already large issue in terms of that inequality and inequity of access and opportunity that these things are set up and designed to try to, um, to eradicate or mitigate. And um, in thinking about, I'm wondering, and and Rebecca, I'm curious to know what you think about um, how much of this backlash do we think could be contributed to this last year during the pandemic of having students at home where parents are, much more present in students' everyday schools. And so they are much more cognizant of the conversations that are happening. And so they might be more aware of uh, methodologies, pedagogies that we might be using in terms of um, talking more authentically and um, honestly about historical events and um, more correct representation of these systems that are in place that might be contrary to their own educational experiences or personal perspectives of, of history and the history of America, uh, in particular at a time where we have a very, um, or where we had a, a very volatile political situation that was uh, extremely divisive.
2: Yeah. My- students being at home during COVID. So the thing about getting information is you're gonna attach to what's close to you and your understanding is only gonna go as far as where you're learning it from. And so while some students might be in a place in which these conversations are rooted in understanding, okay, what exactly is critical race theory? Some students are gonna be at home in which they're just latching on to, this is something that is hated and that's as far as the understanding is going to go and so they might not have educators to play as intermediaries to be like okay well let's back up a bit you know what we we start with this well what is it and they might not get those foundational questions to really start to understand okay you can not be for it, but you should understand why you don't like it or why you don't support it. And that's where a lot of lacking, you know, it's coming in. And with critical race theory, it kind of poses this divisive white versus black, because it's not just in white households that's this misunderstanding of critical race theory. There's, you know, black households as well. You'll have, you know, black parents who might be like, well, I have been through school and I have all these degrees. I don't feel like I've been hindered or oppressed in our education system. And that's not the point of it as well. You know, that's not the point. So being at home and not having an educator to break it down, someone who has an understanding of it and saying, okay, here's the information. You have all of this, come to your own conclusions based on all of the sides that you were given. And so there's um a, a gap that critical race theory, Cambridge, but of course, if it's not there, we're just going to keep widening that gap, if you will.
0: Yeah, and maybe even the introduction of it or presentation of these terms and ideas coming from political arenas versus educational arenas as an introduction, thinking about even, you know, in my own research, using critical race theory as a lens through which, you know, I've studied and, and teach, like thinking about, how, it's been around. This isn't something that was imagined just in the last year or two years or six months. Like we've been using this for, for a long time, but you know, maybe thinking about like from that, that teacher's perspective of if it would have been explained to parents, like, oh, so here's, you know, here's a lens I'm using, or here's um, some pedagogy I'm using with like even culturally responsive teaching. Like we're seeing backlash with both of these things. And uh, you know, I'm wondering how much of this might be just the term and who presented it versus the actual idea behind it. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of parents might really embrace the, the concept if, if it wasn't presented by a particular person packaged a particular way.
2: Yeah, and I think if educators were giving the platforms and the attention that our politicians and even celebrities are given, I think a lot of our conversations and understanding will be a lot different, you know, someone who can like break down the history and the understanding. And like you said, it wasn't posed by certain particular, you know, politicians that, of course, if a certain person say something it's automatically inflammatory and there's already gonna invoke certain responses and emotions there, we might be in a different place.
1: Yeah, and I had a couple of thoughts too about just to kind of build on this this whole idea of what are the sources of this. I think you know, Rebecca, that your your point about how the backlash goes way back. I mean, that's crucial to talk about what you know the backlash to Brown versus Board of Ed, and then I mean, even I guess I could think even further back about the backlash to Reconstruction and the institution of black codes. But but of course, for the modern period, that Brown versus Board of Ed is so critical. Um, uh, some interesting research that I've read that that I'm, I'm curious what you think about is um, there's a some some statistical study that uh, NBC News did in an investigation where they looked at districts where some of the most contentious debates about the teaching of critical race theory or supposed teaching of it, um, you know, discussions of of structural racism in in education have happened uh, are are found to be communities where there's been a rapid increase in diversification racially and ethnically over a period of 10 or 20 years and so it doesn't seem completely coincidental uh you know this is statistical study that, that these districts there's a lot of anxiety let's say among what had been in the past this white majority and we've seen that this had been whipped up politically of course in recent years particularly in the last Five or five years uh, in certain parts of the political spectrum. Um, so I'm curious if we, if there's a sort of demographic element or a let's say an element of society that is feeling threatened demographically, whether at the community level or even nationally, with you know, the recent census and, and so forth. And then the other thing I was thinking about is, you know. 2020 saw a massive upsurge in racial justice, uh, grassroots activism around the the executions of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. And how can we see the backlash also in the more immediate period within the context of those racial justice struggles? Yeah, so
2: like, it's like a why now question. (laughs) Like, how do we get here now? And like, I think the beauty of social media Is like being able to trace the digital footprints of events, like you know, constructing the timeline of this backlash. And so even prior to um 2020, you know, we can even go back to like the year before that. So December 2019. So this putting us right on the eve of those murders, but also of the pandemic itself, because people were at home more and a lot more attached to their phones and social media. And so in December 2019. The New York Times launched the 1619 Project, which was the brainchild of our colleague, you know, Hannah Jones, and the series of articles and columns commemorates the date 400 years ago when about two dozen slave in, enslaved Africans disembarked near Point Comfort, which is located today in Hampton, Virginia. And according to the series, their arrival in 1619 represents the expansion of American slavery and the founding contradictions of US colonial history. Now, fast forward to May 2020, the World Watch Officer Derek Chauvin murdered Black Minneapolis resident George Floyd. And this incident, of course, led to days of racial unrest, not just here in the States, but around the world, which show the Black Lives Matter movement really reached it peaked at its global impact, really. And so Hannah Jones chronicled through the lens of critical race theory in her column, What is Owed? And so then in response to that, our then-President Donald Trump sent out a tweet that denounced the teaching of the 1619 Project in schools, announcing that funding will be cut by the Department of Education Um, in schools that taught the project as a part of its curriculum. And so on September 17th of last year, the White House Conference on American History, Trump announced the formation of the 1776 Commission. And during his speech, he said, critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda. A couple of days later, he issued his executive order on combating race and sex stereotyping. And so there was a wave of legislation that started to ban critical race theory and the 1619 Project in public schools um, using much of the same language that was found in the president's executive order. And so then February of this year, the Pulitzer Center um, launched the 1619 Project Educational Network. So educators selected for the inaugural cohort received like $5,000 in grants that helped to fund podcasts like this one and, you know, other creative projects that incorporated the New York Times series. So in response to this, so we're seeing a lot of back and forth. In response to this, Republican lawmakers in states like Iowa, Georgia, and Arkansas filed bills to block the use of the 1619 Project and critical race theory in the classroom. So then in April, we have a new administration. The Biden administration announced the creation of the American History and Civics Education Program to promote culturally responsive teaching. So then amid all of this, Hannah Jones, she's denied tenure at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, to which she responded and I quote trying to really silence me at this part of a wave of these anti 1619 project anti critical race theory and anti history bills that are being passed and they're being passed in the same legislators that are also passing voter suppression laws so these things are going hand in hand
0: it's all about power mm-hmm an attempt to maintain power.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad that you brought in 1619 and, and and interesting how that how that the anti-CRT, anti-1619 project, um really are, you know, kind of embedded in this period of struggle and in response to that struggle and, and maybe the idea that it as you I think critically mentioned, it it not only exploded around the United States and all kinds of communities, including predominantly white communities, on you know Alaska and North Dakota and places where you know that had not seen these kinds of struggles before. But as you pointed out, also internationally, and I think I think the point that you're making here of linking the 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 attacks on uh, critical race theory, 1619, you know, it kind of in defense of the supposed sacred cow of seeing the origins of American history as pure. Uh, and, and the attack on voting rights. I think the timing and is not coincidental that that all of that is happening. Um, no, so thank you for that. And we see that
0: time and time again, in particular right before elections, where you know, you know where it is predominantly the methodology of one party over another to utilize fear and to try to create a con- you know a common enemy to rally people against and in this case and because of the um, the advancement in global recognition of the work of black lives matter and a you know huge societal outcry for um, you know anti- racism um, that you know, it, it, it's, it feels like, and, and we see that in conjunction with voter suppression laws because the voice, right? We're, we're having the, the lifting of the voice, the, the um, advocating of self of an entire population who had been and continues to be suppressed. Uh, and in order to suffocate that, then, you know, that's what we have to do. That's the way that we can do it politically, right? In this country is through voting. And so that, that becomes the method by which the silencing continues, the maintenance of power. Um, and so, you know, critical race theory is not new. Cultural responsive teaching is not new. They've been going on. Why was it now? Why was it, you know, and then in conjunction with these things. You know, we saw it in the 2016 election, it was the wall, right? All the narrative was about the wall. We have to rally up. We have to do this wall. We have to protect ourselves, America, 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 when really that's just code for white, white, white. And you know, then again, we see it coming into the election of 2020 where it's now critical race theory and now it's this supposed white guilt thing that's happening, right? This like trying to make students feel guilty about their whiteness. Um, and so this is outcry of trying to come up with a common enemy to then get and vote with that con- conjunction with voter suppression then allows the maintenance of the power held by certain people.
1: Yeah. There's so much here that we could, we could spend, <laughs> no, I, wonder, I want to kind of shift into the super more upset and passionate. No, 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 I, I, I seriously, I mean, <laughs> this topic leads in all directions and back, you know, and, and we could go to all sorts of other subtopics and they could come back here, but no, but I want to kind of, take it from the level of theory, theoretical and, and sort of meta analysis, all of which is like super important to what we're talking about. And if we can kind of shift gears slightly, Rebecca, um, can we talk a little bit about the classroom again? And in your own experience in the classroom, whether it's Sac State or, or you know at Mem- University of Memphis, where you taught before, I, I, or you were, I assume you were teaching when you were doing your doctoral work there, um, or, or other places maybe you've taught. Um, How have you found questions about the legacy of racism, historical legacy and its contemporary kind of echoes uh, received by students uh, in the classroom and kind of connected to that, how have you found it most effective to kind of meet students where they are given that they're coming at this from such wide ranging levels of knowledge, as well as perhaps levels of, of acceptance of the narrative that, that you might be offering to them?
2: Yeah, like, so going back to my statement about, you know, students not coming to us as empty vessels, they have not only so much knowledge about, you know, racism, but they have so many different experiences with it, you know, so while they explain their experiences experiences with racism, as educators, you know, we provide the historical context of how and why we got here. And, you know, for students, you know, I think getting them to understand our experiences with this is very, and we go back and we understand the policies, the legislations and key actors roles and why groups experience racism and discrimination, as well as identifying microaggressions and implicit biases that many themselves are, you know, admitting to my maybe having because of where they come from. And so I find that in the classroom, um, when students take, you know, my um, African American history classes or civil rights movement classes, unless they're majors in this, a lot of them take these courses because they're an elective. So they choose to take it. And so I get to the root of what brought them to me. And a lot of times it's interest. And sometimes it's just personal. I have students who are training to become cops. And they're like, I don't want to be a part of the problem. Like, I understand, you know, they're like, I can understand arguments on defunding the police or abolishing them, you know. And of course, we know that cops have a purpose in our society. And they're like, I want to change the narrative. So I need to come in and make sure that I understand all of these histories in order to, because I'm going to run into different folks every day. And I don't want to come at them like so many others and just have all of these microaggressions and assumptions of their cultures. I want to understand people. And so it really does break open these conversations and just for students to come in and be like, I want to learn. That's already putting so much important groundwork there. They're not coming in saying, oh, I know all this. We don't need to learn that because it's like, why are you here? Right. And so students are really open-minded in my experience. And when I was, you know, a graduate student for, you know, the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Justice, I'm gonna plug that. Look them up because they do great work at the University of Memphis. You know, we talked about one thing as expanding not only our outreach and media presence to our larger communities. But bringing in the voices of our students, you know, when we talk about social justice today, our students are the ones that you might see in pictures on the news or across social media and may not know their names. You know, you see them on the bullhorns. They're doing the recordings of the videos, and that's a whole other bag of worms there. But they're the ones who are out here putting in the work. And so we wanted to showcase their work and their communities and their voices. And so the series that you brought up, um, Civil Rights Stories to Inspire Change, this came about with um, a conversation with our executive director, Daphne Hooks. She said, you know, I want some, a video series, you know, you're a historian, so you can give us this context, but look up something specifically in Memphis. And, you know, Memphis is one of those places that's rich in." cultural history, Black history from music to certain events. Of course, a lot of people can just pinpoint that this is where Dr. King was assassinated, you know, but it's also one of those places that doesn't get the recognition in the civil rights movement like New York and Chicago, Detroit, or even Birmingham does. And so she was like, you know, do some research, give me five videos to start out with so we can go from there. So I did the research and I narrowed down my list to the 1968 Memphis Sanitation Worker Strike. So this brought Dr. King to town. Mason Temple, this is the church where Dr. King delivered his famous and even prophetic mountaintop speech. Um, WDIA, this is a radio station based in Memphis, Tennessee, of course, it's been active since the 40s, 1947, I believe but it was the first um, radio station in the US that was programmed entirely for African-Americans. Tom Lee, this is a park and a monument that's named after this individual. He was an African-American river worker who saved the lives of 32 passengers on the sinking steamboat, the Emmy Norman in 1925. And it's my understanding that this man couldn't swim, but he didn't hesitate to risk his life to save the life of others. We did the first Bill Street Baptist Church, and this is a historic church on the famous Bill Street. So it's kind of like um, the French Quarter in New Orleans and, you know, all of that. And it was built by a congregation of freed slaves in the city. So if you know anything think about like religion being segregated in a church and the first AME in Philadelphia because Blacks couldn't worship alongside it. So formerly enslaved people built this church. And it's actually still not only in existence, but it has a great congregation to this day. So it speaks to that history. And so from there, it was just a matter of, writing scripts, um, word count, doing the history, but something that could be given to students and a message could be passed on for whomever is passing through YouTube, however the algorithms work, but wanting people to get a really quick version of this history with the hopes that they'll continue this work. And so we sent out emails across campus to African-American history majors, um, and we got a great response from his, um, from students who were not just history majors, but one student who did the 1968 Memphis Sanitation Worker Strike, his grandfather was actually one of the strikers. So like I said, when we come into the classroom and see why students take our classes, sometimes it's interest and sometimes it's personal. So to see that intersection there. And so we were able to get it filmed, got some music. We have a great... Um, media guy there, Nathan Ball, who is an alumni at Memphis. He edited all of the work. We did voiceovers and stuff, and we rolled them out every two weeks or so, and then COVID hit. So, you know, it was kind of a pause, but the goal was to work with our history department, they're strong in um, African American history, the English department, which does African American literature, and have the professors incorporate this into their curriculum, because students are always on their phone, and they're always on TikTok doing challenges, it may be something that would bridge, you know, social media with education, because I think the word is edutainment today, but I mean, anything that gets students excited about it, they're for it, you know, they know how to use the technologies and anything to be a part of that social media conversation, so that's how we got started, in. Hopefully this is something like I want to bring to my civil rights movement course here. And yeah, it was, it was great. So I'm really proud of the work that we did.
1: That's incredible. And that that actually was going to be my next question. Do you see this as something that you would integrate into your classes at Sac State or even, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, think about having conversations with local educators in the high schools in the Sacramento area maybe about this, you know, bringing this kind of approach because as you said, students definitely are very excited to have options to writing essays, you know, to think about doing multimedia mm-hmm. um, and to kind of bring that focus also to local history, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as you did in Memphis. Is that something that you you've got any plans in the works to, to yeah. do or have started doing here? Absolutely. Like um, so I'll be teaching my civil rights movement
2: course in the summer, and I actually want my students to Sacramento is rich in. And- the movement, like we have Black Panther movement here. And also, when I do civil rights movement, it's not just the Black struggle for civil rights movement. We talk about Latinx and Chicanx history. We talk about Asian histories. We talk about the American Indian movement. We talk about, like, there's a lot of white students who are fighting for ethnic studies and stuff on their campuses, who are fighting, who are anti-war activists. And all of this, like the 60s, is just this, gosh, this firestorm, right? And there's so many different voices fighting for a lot of the same things. And so, yeah, I mean, and my students, like they come in and they're like, yeah, my aunt was like in the Black Panthers here or, you know, American Indian movement. So the students, like you said, if we could get past just the research paper, which is always like, oh my God, I gotta do research. But if we can amplify their skills and say, hey, this is your interest. You have the skills to do that. They're all over it. Like they come up with just some of the greatest projects. And I think that's where we as educators need to relax the reins a bit and let the students brainstorm. You know, we always have to come with a syllabus, but it's okay to be like, okay, well, we don't have to be so rigid. There's some flexibility here. Anything that gets them involved, I think we should be okay with being like, of course, we have to rein it in because we don't have so much time, but something that gets them excited about the learning and they want to take it back to their families. Like I've had so many students like I do um, once a month every month throughout the semester is I do a wellness check-in and they'll drop in and they'll be like this is my mom I was telling her about this and they were like and the parents are like this is brand new they've never been this excited about a class and so they show me the work and we sit down we have these conversations so if we can do that like our work is it just really just to um validate you know that's a Contro, a controversial word, but it does really reinforce why we do what we do. So anything that gets them excited about history, because that's one of those notorious subjects where people are like, that was not my favorite class. I'm not a history buff. I couldn't tell you about the Civil War, nor do I care about it. <laughs> you know. And so anytime we could get them excited about the classroom and them taking it back to their families, um, hey, so I'll definitely want to um, bring these video series to campus, and with Sac State being an anchor university, you know, I think this plays right into that. How do we use our classrooms and take them to our communities? I think this is one of those ways
1: that'll um, get us there. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, your excitement is <laughs> contagious, and I yeah. feel it. <laughs> and, I'm all, and I'm all and I'm all for the wellness check idea, and and yeah. the idea of, of of connecting with family members. You know, as you mentioned with student one of your students back at Memphis whose who's father had been involved in the sanitation strike that brought Martin Luther King to Memphis in 1968. Incredible. That kind of connection and someone who was really living living example of, of embodying that history, uh, fantastic. So I know Sophia has some questions. I'm gonna, we're gonna shift it a little bit over there.
0: So I was, you know, listening to you talk about all the ways that, you know, this can be used. I keep thinking, you know, my, my teacher brain's always working and, and I'm thinking about, you know, oh, how could we use this in, in a high school classroom? How could we use this in a, in a junior high classroom? And, and all these ideas are just flooding my brain and, and I'm like, okay, now I want to go, I want to go back and, and teach this grade and I want to go back here and help there. And I'm thinking like, how um, so much of this really lends itself and speaks to experiential learning, right? And thinking about like student-centered classrooms and um, looking at project-based learning opportunities where we can really dive into some um, cross-curricular, collaborative type projects where uh, we're working at you know putting English and history together and and really. you know, we spend so much time in these separate content bubbles and and the reality is is that nothing really exists in a vacuum and that everything's so much more strongly interrelated. And, um, you know, pulling that in really helps make it feel much more relevant um, and authentic, I think, for students. So I see so many rich opportunities in this, in that video series in particular, I'm already thinking about recommendations I have for my student teachers and thinking about, oh, you know what would be great. You should utilize that. You could do this. And if you just work with this history teacher over here, and then you know, <laughs> have my mind is already going. <laughs> thank
2: you. Yeah, no problem. Like, I think um, that's so important because when we go to grad school, it's like doctoral studies. Okay. This Memphis, uh, this building is history, you know, doctoral students, that building way over there is English. I have no idea who's in English. So we, are programmed into having these separate, like you said, we're not a vacuum, but we kind of function that way. And anything that bridges those gaps. Like when I was at the University of Memphis, I was the president of the Graduate Association for African American History. I did an interdisciplinary conference because it's like, you know, everybody's work is rooted in history anyway. And just because it's more contemporary or whatever the case is, doesn't mean that we can't learn from it just because it's not in our disciplines. And so anything that gets, you know, and a lot of our classes might be course listed. So it's like, why aren't we collaborating across, you know, those disciplines? And I think something like this would really, like you say, oh, my God, there's so much we can do. And I think simply asking the students like, hey, what do you think? And you might be maybe not, but amazed that, you know, the students have really great ideas and I think if we like give them the opportunity to showcase that we can come up with some really great and unique um, projects and work and collaborations because they also too in bridging the community like they know people in their communities who might be willing to come to the classroom and work and do something or whatever the case is.
0: Yeah so in thinking about you know um, we just asked about the the, the resources and this being a wonderful resource, and really trying to um, connect with, with families and community and helping them have a better understanding around critical race theory and things like culturally responsive teaching, you know, and, and what they really are and the benefits for all students in the classroom and, and ourselves as a community and as a country. Um, how do you, you know? How do you think we should go about, or what what methods are you using to address the idea um, that critical race theory is considered to be divisive, or that it's designed to um, make white students feel guilty about their whiteness? And what are some some ways that we can address that?
2: Yeah, and I was like, you know, if people understood what critical race theory is, they know it's not supposed to be divisive because you know people go through things too <laughs> you know we have you know like it's not saying everybody has problems but you all and it's and that's not the case at all and I think what last year's murder of George Floyd did was spur calls for diversity and equity and inclusion efforts to provide more education about racism and its harmful effects and we see with Black Lives Matter it's not just Black people out there You know, like there's all kinds of people who are fighting for racial and social justice because they know we don't get anywhere if we don't work together. You know, and so it's like we call this place our home and it doesn't belong to just any one person. And I think students really do understand that. And the idea, the goal is not to make white students feel guilty or point fingers at them. And what critical race theory does is that it argues that racism is not the consequence of actions of individual races, but that racism is embedded in the systems of our nation. So that's legal, economic, education, religious, political, and that these systems purport the myth of equality, but they operate in a way that has always benefited whites and continues to do so. And so how do we benefit everybody, right? So it's not pinpointing someone and saying, how do we include everyone by not excluding one person. And so it challenges the myth that everyone in our country is treated equally, has the same benefits and opportunities, and that the playing field is level. It examines how our institutions create and perpetuate racial inequalities.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And to to build on that, um, you know, thinking about, you know, and that seems to be Uh, a shift that we're seeing in education is we still talk about equality, but we're now really discussing and prioritizing equity, discussions Mm -hmm. around equity. And can you talk a little bit about how that relates to the legacy of racism in American education?
2: Yeah. So like, you know, surveys, assessments, and outcomes have demonstrated time and time again that educational equality, which is the attempt to treat every student the same, has failed students from certain backgrounds, while the evolution to educational equity can improve education for students who have been neglected or left behind. And so educational equality assumes that all students' educational needs are the same, and we know that that's not true. And so what educational equity does is that it ensures that the needs of individuals from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds, individuals with disabilities and other disenfranchised minorities are also provided with educational tools, resources and the support that they need to individual students' educational needs and make sure that these are met. And so to effectively advocate for equity in education, we have to first recognize that systemic education exists and has existed in the education system since its formation. You know, the voices of Black, Indigenous, and people of color were intentionally omitted from decision-making that has shaped the way our current system functions. So even when, you know, Brown versus Board was decided in 54 and was supposed to end segregation in our schools, that decision didn't ensure that families of color could participate in the decision-making processes at the school, district, state, and federal levels. So if you're saying, you know, okay, we're going to integrate, who was a part of that? And we can even go back to the constitution. Like there's a lot of conversation surfacing now saying, well, women weren't a part of that making. And of course, we didn't have people of color there. We had all white men making the constitution. So it's like, we go back to the drawing board what looks different, and how does it change, and how do we ensure that there's inclusion of everyone here? And that's what critical race theory, bottom line, seeks to do. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I, I think even about like just the the formation of American education in its in its inception and who had access to that and its reason, right? You know, being rooted in, uh, you know, wanting to forefathers wanting to be able to replace themselves as, you know, needing future leaders and it was only open to boys and of a particular class and status. And so then, you know, we kind of see, uh, you know and that's important, right? It's important to understand the beginnings of American education to have a a better, like like you've been talking about, you know a better understanding of how we got to where we are now. Um, And I, there's a, um, a graphic out there that I always think about with equity and equality. And when you're talking, I thought about it again where it has the fence and it has, uh, you know, the taller person who can see over the fence, and then um, we we have the, you know, each each little rung up, and we have what looks like, you know, so both both people have a box that they can stand on, and that's equality. And then we have two boxes for the shorter person who'd finally be able to see over, and that being equity. And um, you know, it's uh, it, it's it, I think. For me, as an educator, too, like it was really helpful to, um, to really think about it in those terms of meeting students where they are. We talk about it a lot, but to really think about what does that mean, um, and on all levels, not just everybody gets the same textbook, but making sure that my student who needs braille has a braille textbook. Um, and that's you know an example I've used with with my students too. Uh, so these are really big topics that um, can can bring about a lot of emotion and um, it, you know a, a lot of varying responses. And even when we're just talking about it as educators and amongst you know amongst ourselves, but even you know with the community and in, in with recent events and um, the pushback on it. And, uh, you know, we're just kind of curious about some ways that, you know, educators are um, able to kind of preserve and protect themselves. In particular, educators of color um, who, you know, what are some strategies maybe that can be used to mitigate trauma for themselves having these discussions um, with with community members who uh, might be less accepting or maybe even sometimes aggressive around the topics of critical race theory and, um, and that culturally responsive teaching methods. Um, and also provide safe spaces too for their students to be able to explore their own understandings of these concepts.
2: Yeah, like first it's important to let students and other people know that educators were human too, you know, um, and being an educator of color, And being new and coming to a space, I think first and foremost, learning to protect yourself, you know, um, speaking for yourself, I think is really important. Like, I think everybody has to be an advocate for oneself, but then also constantly, I constantly remind my students that this space is all of ours. Like I'm learning alongside you, just because I'm the professor, I'm not the end all and be all, and I don't know everything. And you have to say like, yeah, I'm learning as well. Like, I don't know everything about you. I don't know anything about you. What you can teach me some stuff as well, you know? And this is our community. And a big part of learning is asking questions and letting students know that it's always okay to ask questions, you know? And it's okay for us to say, well, we don't know. We don't have the answers, but we can talk to other people. We can talk to each other. And talking. And I think that's one thing people do too much of is talk, but they don't listen. And that's another part of that conversation. I always tell them we have two ears and one mouth, so we can listen twice as much as we talk, you know, because there's a, and the thing about social media is everybody is talking. And you can go to a comment section and you'd be like, it go way off the rails. And you're like, nobody is reading or listening. And so that's really important. Um, But it's okay to have different perspectives but it's equally important to make sure that we respect one another. And, you know, how we protect ourselves is as historians, you know, somebody who teaches like slavery and stuff, we don't get a debriefing, you know, session. Um, the images I show and the languages that are used in historical newspapers or stuff, you know, a lot of things are triggering. And so it's okay to say, I need a moment, you know, and students are really um, compassionate. Like, gosh, I know students get, all kinds of flack, but really I think if you just come and be open with students and just say, you know what, I'm not okay today. They're okay with that. They are okay with you saying, you know what, let's take a break. Let's, you know what, this was on the agenda today, but this happened in the news or whatever. And some of them are like, I'm just not in the space of, let's talk about that. Like what do we, what do we need to do to be okay in this space and make it from one moment to the next. And I think once you humanize yourself to students, they're like looking at you as a human who just so happens to be teaching this course as opposed to to someone who's teaching this course. And then you go to another something that's teaching that course. And especially in this virtual world, um, my undergraduate class is asynchronous, so they're listening to my lectures, and that's why I do a wellness check-in, so that they'll see that there's a person there that's a real person, and, you know, I have my days where I'm not okay, and my dog will put her head in the camera, and, and they kind of look at you differently. They're like, oh, well, you're just like me, you know? <laughs> it's like, so I think once we just say we're humans at the very basic level, no matter our intersecting identities and where we come from that we're just humans and we're just all trying to figure whatever this is out. I think students kind of shift and just kind of be like, "Yeah, okay. So where do we go from here?" and they're open to these conversations about critical race theory and culturally responsive teaching and racism and sexism and you know, identities and they're good with that, you know. So I found that to be really effective and, you know, teaching things that's not in their high school textbooks. Like, I feel like as a history educator, I'm teaching them things that they probably should have learned so many years ago. And so now they're like, oh, I've never learned about disability history. And one of my areas is that I do transgender histories. And I talk about that. And they're like, I didn't know the only time I really hear about this is when a Black transgender woman is killed or in Hollywood, he might be celebrated to the point where they're kind of exploited for being that trans person. So then they're kind of just put out there to be like, oh, look, we're inclusive when they're really not. <laughs> you know, so students, like, yeah, like we all humanize ourselves. And I think that's a way to provide a safe space. And they dig it and we have a good time, but we learn a lot too.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I, I, Jan, I'm going to speak for both. This was great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I want to, I, I want to I wanna second that emotion to, yeah. quote, to quote the song and uh, and also Rebecca just to thank you for your last point about humanizing yourself in the classroom and being vulnerable with students when a topic emerges that is you know that is disturbing or tra- even traumatic. And no. That it's often frightening, and we, and as you mentioned, there isn't a place to debrief all the time for educators, and maybe we need to create those spaces too, just as we're trying to do so for our students. But I, I'm totally on board with what you're saying about creating compassionate classroom spaces, and that, you know, I know, you know, those terms can get attacked as being, you know, you know whatever, wish you luck <laughs> here, you know, whatever. But I think really it's when we're in these compassionate classrooms and we create that space for ourselves and our students that humanizes the classroom. It humanizes history. It humanizes whatever it is that we're teaching. It Mm -hmm. makes people more open to learning. So that's just, I thank you so much for that. And yes, absolutely. Thank you for joining us. And we um, we will be back in the future to pursue these themes uh, in greater detail. I know we have a future episode planned on ethnic studies in the K through 12 classroom. And so I'm sure we'll be picking up on some of these questions. But again, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking your time. Uh, thank you. With us today on Cap City Chalk Talk. So thank you for having me. This was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Peace. So.
0: Today's episode of Cap City Chalk Talk hosted by dr sophia mattingly and dr jennifer sellin music and production of all things technical graciously provided by joe gabin